Welcome to JR Art Loud, the podcast of Jewish Renaissance. My name's Judy Herman, and I'm really excited today to be talking to David Charles Abel. And, and he has so much history with musical theatre and opera, but particularly with Kiss Me Kate, and that's what we're going to talk about today, Kiss Me Kate and the involvement of the Spiwaks, Sam and Bella, who wrote the book, and particularly Bella, who I think is, well, the, she's the eminence grise behind this one, don't you agree? <laughs> I agree. I love Bella. I did a lot of research about her. I'm very interested in the fact that you're across opera and musicals. You've worked so much on musicals with opera companies, and I think that's very interesting, you know, the sort of intersection. You're a Bernstein and Sondheim aficionado and experts. There's Cole Porter as well. So just can you just talk a little bit about that before we home in on the Spellworks? Doing musicals with opera companies is very interesting and wonderful and not without its problems. Theatres work in a very different way from opera companies. And theatre artists, actors, work in a very different way from opera singers. So when you mix the two... It, uh, there can be misunderstandings. <laughs> mm. But luckily, Opera North has been doing musicals for many years, and they, they know what they're doing. They, they cast the shows extremely well. They know how to rehearse them. They understand what dancers need as opposed to singers. And they work very closely with the directors and the, and the conductors of the shows. So Kiss Me Kate at Opera North turned out extremely well, I think. Like a production of, of a musical, but it also has pizzazz. Just before, it's okay. how do we pronounce Spiewak, incidentally? Is that right? Or is it uh, Spiewak. Spiewak, okay. Let's get yes. that right. So Sam, <laughs> Sam and Bella Spiewak. She, well, she was from um, Transylvania. He was from Ukraine, actually. She was quite posh. Apparently, they were very intellectual, the Romanian immigrants to America, the Jews. And before we really home in on them, it's a sad day. We're speaking today on the, the day that the death of Philip Roth has been announced. Yes, indeed. There's been a lot of talk today about Philip Roth's Jewishness standing for you know, the American story, at least in New York, at least on the coasts, perhaps, as being a very Jewish story, so that they were almost interchangeable for, for many years. And I was thinking that really the Spiwaks epitomised that as well, particularly Bella, because she wrote quite extensively about the horrors of coming to New York as a child. So I think that's really interesting that that should happen today. Well, sad. Yes, indeed. So do you think... It's, it's interesting that Cole Porter always said, I probably... You know, something about needing to write Jewish in order to succeed. And so a lot of the people he collaborated with were Jewish, particularly the Spiwaks. So it was sort of like a shorthand for sassy and sophisticated and world-wise and wary even, isn't it? What do you yeah, think? Yes, I don't know how to explain the fact that... A lot of American musical theater, a large majority uh, of the great classics of American musical theater was created by Jewish composers and Jewish writers. You know, it's a fact, but I, I have no explanation for it. Cole Porter was the only one of the big five composers of the so-called golden age who was not Jewish. But, uh, of course, in classical music, you know, um, there was a huge uh, Jewish presence. I think because so many fine Jewish musicians uh, immigrated, emigrated from Europe to the United States over a period of 50, 60 years. I mean, 
I suppose it hasn't even stopped in our day. It's, it's still going on, really. And um, they were attracted by the opportunity that the United States offered, I think, to be professional musicians. And, um, you know, many of them had to leave their homelands, of course. And we were the beneficiaries of that. And so the sort of melange or melting pot mm. of so many different cultures in the United States, and particularly New York, was really stimulating. And cultures sort of blended, and Jewish culture sort of became, New York culture became Jewish culture in a lot of ways, with other influences, of course, but it was very Jewish. I think maybe Kiss Me Kate, there's no mention of Jewish or Christian or anything in it at all, but certainly the fact that the, the, the two the writers of the libretto were Jewish had a, had a big influence on, on the tone of the show and the style of the show. I, I think so. She had had that New York experience, you know, the sort of child of the ghetto type experience. I mean, you know, she wrote a memoir called Memoir of the Lower East Side, litany of the of the problems of uh, being with a, a lone mother because the father's gone and the mother has to go out to work and she has to keep being left with people and, and who who is kind, who isn't, how she has to learn to stand on her own two feet the hard way. It's quite interesting. The other thing that I've been catching up with, but at this time, you know, when there's a lot of paranoia about Russia, probably justifiably, it's interesting to note that this Biwak spent four years in Russia in 1922 to 26. And I, I was just astonished to, to read that, to not know too much about what they got up to there, but we're deep in the sort of Stalin-Lenin sort of territory then, aren't we? But then they, they come back and they write this incredible show about it, which is their first collaboration with Cole Porter, this Leave It To Me. So that, that absolutely, all I want to do now is I want to see it. It's a film as well. Uh, but have you ever come across the actual musical? No. I mean, oh. I think there's one or two songs that became hits from it. But and how. Um, yeah, My Heart Belongs To Daddy comes from it. Let's go back to Kiss Me Kate. Just to home in on that production for a moment, so you originally created that production as conductor and musical director, is that right? Or... Upper North? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the, the sequence was in 2008, I was asked by the Glimmerglass Festival, which is a festival in upstate New York, to conduct Kiss Me Kate. Whenever I conduct a Broadway show, I try to find a full orchestral score to it. It's very difficult in many cases, because with a hit show, for instance, when a, hit, when a show is a hit on Broadway, the composer will publish a piano vocal score afterwards, which is usually very well edited and um, put out for the public to have if they want to do the show. For the orchestration, there's never a, a full score published. And orchestras at that time were fairly large. They were 28 or 30 people in the orchestra. And as a conductor, I want to know what every instrument is playing. It's not enough for me to see a piano reduction. Then I don't know what the clarinet's playing, I don't know what the guitar is playing, the basses, the violins, I have no idea who's doing what. And I can't see, if someone asks me if their part is correct or not, I can't answer the question because I don't have a score. For all the great operas and symphonies, you have full orchestral scores which have been properly edited, but for Broadway shows, no. So I did some research back in 2008 and um, was directed to a lawyer's office in Midtown Manhattan uh, who said, we have some music on the shelves, but we don't really know what it is. You're welcome to come take a look. 
Now, this lawyer's office was the Coldwater Trusts, and it's the Coldwater Trusts. And I went down, and they had a bunch of music on the shelves. I saw that most of it was not very significant or, or rare. But then on the shelves in that Manhattan lawyer's office, my eye was caught by some yellowing bits of manuscript with ink pen on it, which turned out to be the original orchestrator's scores of Kiss Me Kate. And this was a major find. So they very kindly photocopied it for me, and I conducted that production from those scores. Afterwards, uh, they, they, the Coldwater Trust came up to see the production. They liked it very much. And I had an idea. I, I thought, well, why don't we publish these orchestral scores? Um, you know, this is what Broadway shows should be. You should be able to buy or rent a score of the orchestration and do the piece as it was originally conceived. When shows are revived on Broadway, usually they're reorchestrated as well. There are two reasons for that. One is so that producers can save money, use a smaller orchestra, and the other is that styles change and um, you know different types of arrangements and dance routines are wanted. Uh, my feeling is I want the original version. When you do a Mozart opera, you want the original Mozart opera. You don't want it orchestrated by some other guy. <laughs> and I feel the same way about Broadway musicals, particularly the great classics. Mm. So to my um, delight and surprise, the Coldwater Trust said, yes, we do want to do this. And they raised some money and paid myself and my husband, Sean Alderking, um, for four years to, <laughs> four years. <laughs> to prepare this edition. The original idea was that it would be something that would fill the gaps between conduction engagements. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly there were no gaps. So I ran <laughs> out of time and I was late. And I actually had to turn down eight months worth of work. And Sean and I just stayed at home and worked with all of the original orchestra parts we had found, the original scores, Bella Spiewak's papers. We went to Columbia and we um, looked at them and were able to photocopy a large number of them. Um, and many, many other sources, and uh, learned about scholarly musicology, which we didn't know much about before that, so we were learning on the job, and wrote eventually a 742-page orchestral score <laughs> with, I think, um, 740 70 or 80 massive. pages of footnotes at the end, which we had to learn how to write them, too. Uh, every decision that you make when you're creating a critical edition of a score has to be documented, you have to justify each choice that you make. So if you say the clarinet should be playing a B-flat in this bar, you have to say why you believe that's the case. So you might say, well, in the original orchestrator's scores, it was a B-flat. When the copyist copied it, they made a mistake and made wow. it be natural. And so we believe that it should be a B-flat because that's how the original orchestrator... You know, and you also cite other things, maybe Cole Porter's manuscript mm -hmm. or whatever. That was a big job, and um, but we also wanted to make it a practical edition so that you could simply put the scoring parts up on the music stands and play it through, and it would sound just like opening night 1948. Wow. So that's what we did. Now, when uh, I came to conduct the Opera North production, which was, I think, 2015, um, I worked with the director, Joe Davis. She had some ideas of her own about the piece. And so what we did was, while still using the original orchestrations in every case and the original music that was written for the show, we did some reordering and recrafting and uh, adapting of the piece to accommodate her ideas, which I think were fantastic.
And so what you have is you have a production that's based on the critical edition. There's no new music, there's no reorchestration. The script is exactly as it was with a few cuts, but done for 2015 and now for 2018 mm. since it's going to the Colosseum. So I'm very proud of what we did. So you've talked about Bella Spivak's papers. So what? tell me about the papers. What was in the uh, papers that helped you so much? Well, I think that the, a large measure of the success of Kiss Me Kate is due to Bella's work. She was an incredibly tenacious person and also very intelligent and had good taste. There are conflicting accounts of who had the idea of doing a backstage musical of Taming of the Shrew. It probably wasn't Bella, actually. It was probably Saint Subber. Now, Saint had been, I think, something like an assistant stage manager on a production of The Taming of the Shrew in either the late 30s or the early 40s that took place on Broadway, starring the Lunts. Yes. Now, yes. The Lunts were the most famous actors of their day, and they played... Uh, Petruchio and Kate, Kate mm. in The Taming of the Shrew. And of course, a large amount of that play involved them bickering and fighting on stage. And Saint was struck by the fact that when they came off stage, they continued <laughs> bickering and fighting mm. as Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine. They were at each other like cats and dogs. It was terrible. They were screaming backstage. And having been, I, I worked on one production actually in the West End, where two of the stars were doing exactly the same thing and we would hear shouting backstage. Well, you better not tell me who that was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't, I won't. It's um, good that you've worked so on several. So I know what several. that's like. And mm. so Saint, Saint mm. had this idea. So he had that idea. A backstage musical with, mm. the, with the backstage situation mirroring the onstage situation. Mm. And I believe it was he who hired Bella. I can't remember the sequence of things. Bella got this in her teeth. She wrote the script. And she said, we have to have Cole Porter. Now, Cole Porter, but this was in 1948 or 47 that they were planning this, and Cole Porter had not had a hit in over a decade on Broadway. So the conventional wisdom was that he was washed up. But Bella, having worked with him and, and really loving his work, said, we have to have him. I'm not doing this show without him. So she got her way on that. And there's a few elements of the story which I really love and which are wonderful and, and which really show Bella's intense contribution to this project. Bella was adamant that she wanted Cole involved. So she sent, she said, read The Taming of the Shrew. And he did. And his response to her was, well, I read it, but um, I, I don't understand. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, what he meant by that was he didn't understand how The Taming of the Shrew could be made into a musical. But she later wrote in her preface to the published script in 1953, when the script was finally published, she wrote something like, Cole responded, I read it, but I didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> Cole was very insulted by this I'll because bet. he thought that it insulted his intelligence, like he wasn't intelligent enough to understand Shakespeare. <sighs> but the fact was, he had meant, I didn't understand how it could be turned into a musical. Mm. So they had a bit of a set to about that, which involved lawyers. Really? And she apologized. God. But there was never a second printing of the script, so that is still there in, in the script. Is the it? The script. Well, maybe he didn't notice. <laughs> I, um, I, I can really relate to that. I mean, a man like that, he, he must have been absolutely incensed. Dear me. What happened after that was that Bella said, okay, let's meet up. 
And so Paul said, okay, that's fine. Come to my country house in Connecticut. And so they did. And she talked him through the whole piece. And she said, you know, this is what Fred, this is what Petruchio is like. This is what Kate is like. This is what Lucencio is like. Okay, Bianca's character is, well, she's not a bad girl, but she just likes men too much. And she is true to him in her fashion, even though she's unfaithful to him by any other definition of the word. And as they talked about these characters, Cole, you know, started to get inspired. And he thought, okay, I see this character. I could write a song for that character. So over one weekend, I guess this must have been after one of their first meetings, or a meeting that was particularly fruitful, he wrote five or six of the songs that we know and love for Kiss Me Kate. Five or six songs in one weekend. That's the kind of songwriter that he was. So, you know, quick and facile and clever. And his inspiration was largely due to Bella's chats and Bella's explanations. So she is responsible for a great deal of the success. He had written lots of shows before, but usually his shows had one or two great songs in them, and the rest were, well, a bit forgettable or uninspired. Bella's um, explanations and their talks back and forth, their conversations, inspired Cole to write you know, almost every song. Every song in Kiss Me Kate is a gem, really. It's a gem and, and extremely memorable and clever and enjoyable. Yes, I mean, when you think of things like Why Can't You Behave and We, op we Opened in Venice, which... Every time we go to Italy, because we like that corner of Italy, we tend to sort of sing it to each other on trains and, and so forth. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's not a dud one in it. You're just waiting for the next gem to come along. And so maybe after that, he wrote more shows that had more gems in, but she'd inspired him. In yes, but this was This mm. and Anything Goes are his two great shows. Yes. They both have the best books. Yes. And I, I, Bella has a lot to do with it. Bella and Sam. Now, there's one other um, anecdote which relates to her and her marriage to Sam. They were separated at the time she was writing the script. Sam was living with a dancer across town. Tut. In Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bella was not very happy about that. Don't blame her. <laughs> and um, she was writing Kiss Me Kate. She sent the script to the producers. The producers said, yeah, it's good, but it needs to be funnier. It needs more jokes. So she wrote a few more jokes, sent it back to them. Still not funny enough, there's more jokes. They sent it back to her. She wrote a few more, she sent it back to them. Still not funny, and if you don't make it funnier, we're going to rewrite it. She says, over my dead body, you are going to rewrite this thing. Don't you dare, my lawyers, etc., etc." But she knew that there was one person who could write jokes for Kiss Me Kate, and that was her estranged husband, Sam. Oh. So she brought him in. <laughs> Now, Sam was indeed a very funny person and wrote a lot of jokes. And he also had the idea to introduce the characters of the gangster. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. The moment you said, <laughs> I guessed it was him, that, obviously that's something that steals the show. It's a real showstopper, isn't it? So uh, he wrote... Brush up your Shakespeare. Oh. And, of course, the gangster's appearance is what propels the plot and what ups the stakes for Fred Graham and for um, uh, Lucencio, Bill Calhoun. So she then sent the script to Cole Porter. And Cole had an idea for a song about the gangsters. And he wrote over one weekend, Brush Up Your Shakespeare. 
Gosh, one well, weekend. Once that song was in there, you know, there was no way that the gangsters were going to be cut. Bella held out the hope that the gangsters would be cut from the show. <laughs> she was hoping. The reason was she did not want to share the royalty with her uh, husband, Sam. Once Bull wrote Brush Up Your Shakespeare, there was no way those, those um, gangsters were going to be cut. So Bella was foiled. Now, the postscript to this whole story is that Bella and Sam got back together. I was going to say, that's what brought them back <laughs> so together, isn't it? I guess they it? shared their royalty, happy Before. ending, or maybe a bickering ending. I don't know. But I think uh, maybe life mirrored art there, because um, as Fred and Lily get back together... At the end of Kiss Me Kate, having squabbled horribly earlier in the show. Um, so Bella and Sam Spiewak got together after they wrote Kiss Me Kate, yeah. after having been separated. <laughs> so it is life mirroring art, but it's also rather beautiful that the musical brought them back together because they stayed together after that, as far as I can make out. Yes. Mm. For the rest of her life after Kiss Me Kate, after the original production of Kiss Me Kate, she looked after the show very carefully. Um, she was, there's a lot of correspondence with theatres who were wanting to do Kiss Me Kate, including many European theatres and opera houses. Um, and she was also constantly chasing up her royalties and Cole's royalties and Sam's royalties because, um, you know, you don't get paid unless you chase sometimes. Bella was a fighter. There's no question about it. She fought for Cole to do the score. She fought for her script and she continued to fight for the show for the rest of her life. As you say, she was a fighter, but what a life. You know, 90, 91 years, I think. And, Fascinating, yeah. yeah. And, and I wish I could have met her. Yeah, I was just thinking that myself. It wasn't that long ago. You particularly. You know, she, you would have connected big time, wouldn't you? David, thank you so much for talking to me. I've learnt so much, and I can't wait to see Kiss Me Kate, and I know that the spirit of Bella... We'll be looking on. I'm not sure whether she'd be benevolent or jaundiced, but don't you think she might be looking down on us? I think she would be thrilled to know that her show is still being produced in 2018.